0: I hope you'll take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. If you want to use one of these Bibles in the pews, it's page 877. As we look again at a parable, this one on the parable of the the widow and the unjust judge. You know, I'm looking down here. Y'all saw y'all's picture on the front of the Macon Telegraph today. Y'all are famous. Anybody come up asking this? This family up here. You need to go see that. If you don't take the paper. Look at Macon.com. dot com. Not now. After the after the service, and uh, to see that article. I tell you, this is uh, before I read the passage. Uh, uh, I'm I'm grateful that a number of people here in the, this congregation are part of. Uh, the movement to adopt children, especially out of very, very bad homes and last weekend our uh, or last week, our daughter and her eight children, four of whom are adopted, were here for several days and two um, two were adopted their their twins out of a, a very, very bad situation through covenant care they were adopted and um, Af- African American. And uh, Barbara just made the comment, I don't know if it was either that night after we'd all been together watching some Disney movie, I think. And, um, no, maybe it was Die Hard. (laughs) No, it was was a Disney movie. And Barbara said after they went up to go to bed, she said, think of how those kids' lives are different than what the situation was they were in. And and it just kind of hit me fresh. And uh, I was talking with a... um, A a mom that has and dad that have been involved in adoption after the first service, and uh, it's really an honor to serve Christ with you to see that. Uh, My generation that was after Roe v. Wade was passed when I was a senior in high school, then our understanding of what it meant to be pro-life primarily was to seek to change the law, which is still a good thing to do, but. I think the newer generation, like even our, our daughter and son-in-law, they, their idea of being pro-life is adoption, and they uh, to, to adopt children and take action. Uh, so when I hear people say, hey, people that are pro-life don't do anything except, I think, you don't have a clue. You really don't have a clue. Come visit people in our church, and you will, uh, you will gain an understanding. Has nothing to do with the sermon. <laughs> we come to Luke chapter 18, and this is a sermon about persistence in prayer. It's not so much just about prayer, it's a parable. I'm sorry, it's a parable about persistence in prayer. Christ. Um, Luke records this of what Christ said, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. There's the purpose right there, stated in the first verse. This is the purpose of the parable he's getting ready to tell, that they should pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of God, Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth. The purpose of this parable, as I said, is stated in verse 1. So that we would always pray and not lose heart. Let me ask you, what does it mean to lose heart? If you ever prayed for something, just ask yourself this that was very vital, it was very important, and you prayed maybe one day for it, and then you prayed the next day for it, and then by the third day you just thought, all right, I made my request known. If God's going to do it, he's going to do it. Or, or you just kind of give up pessimistically. Well, God's not going to answer this. You lose heart. That's, that's, what, he's, that's what he's describing here. So the purpose is to say, hey, Persist. Persistent in prayer. We have two characters, two main characters. There's a third character, the adversary, but we don't know anything about that person. First, we have the widow. If you were here when we studied the book of Ruth back several months ago, you know that in ancient Israel, widows had a hard time of it. In fact, in many cases, they had such a hard time of it that God gave specific laws to protect them. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 27, God threatens to place a curse on a a person who withholds justice from a widow. Apparently, that was what was happening with this particular woman. We're not told her name, but this widow. Justice is being withheld from her, and she needs help. And we assume there's a certain degree that it's a money matter because she goes on her own before the judge. She doesn't have an advocate. That's the first character. The second character, obviously, is the judge. And we're not told much about this judge, but we have a succinct little description. He neither feared God nor respected man. Now, there's a lot packed into that. That is concentrated. Some people today, maybe you're this way, you care about religious principles, and you care about what God wants us to do, and you could care less about public opinion. You're bold. You really don't care what anybody thinks about you. There are other people who only care about public opinion and not about what is ethical or right. Only care about perception. How do people see me? This man cared about neither. He didn't care what God thought. He didn't care what people thought. He obviously did not have to run again to be elected to be a judge. Whether he was appointed for life, whether he had paid for the office, however he got there, he's obviously not worried about keeping his job. So he didn't care what anybody thought. And this widow who's vulnerable goes before him, and we don't know the the specifics, just says, give me justice against my adversary. In other words, take up my case. Help me get things right. And he refuses There's no indication he even cares. She's just seen as a nuisance. There's nothing in this case for him. And so the woman sees that her only weapon, you might say, her only leg to stand on is to persist, to go over and over and over again. Give me justice against my adversary. Imagine. I mean, just imagine with me for a moment. Let's say this man's married, and he goes home after a long day in court. And his wife says, honey, how was your day? He said, well, it was a pretty typical Monday. I had a dog case, you know, somebody's dog was barking, so I had to deal with that, and somebody was upset. And then there was a, this case over here. This person says that this neighbor's got rotten fruit falling off their tree into their yard. And, so, and then there was this woman, this widow came, but I, I just dismissed her. Tuesday, comes home from work. How was your day? Well, you know what? That same woman was back. She's really starting to get on my nerves. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, the next week, Monday, Tuesday. He, and he's going home and he's saying, she's driving me crazy. How does it say it in the text? She, she, she is going to wear me out. And The wife probably says, get rid of her. Do what's necessary to take care of yourself. So that's what he does. And in the parable, it just briefly says that the man says, although I don't fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by continually coming. He, he gives her what she wants to get her off his back. So in verse 6, Jesus takes what the judge says and he, he says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Now let me back up and explain something to you from parables, as you probably know. Sometimes there are characters in parables that Jesus uses and compares them with God. Like this person's patience is a reflection of the patience of God. This is a parable of contrast. And so he's not saying that God the Father is like this judge that he just puts up with us until we persist and then he answers our prayers to get us off his back, so to speak. No, he is contrasting God, the loving Heavenly Father, who wants to take care of his children with this judge who could care less. So he's saying, if even the unrighteous judge ultimately gives in to the widow's request, how much more will the Father... I like points of emphasis. (laughs) How much more will the Father give to those who love him? All right, that's the parable. That's the parable. What are some lessons? Well, first... The context, are y'all still with me? I'm getting ready to get very practical, but before we get there, let me give you one more technicality. Before this parable in the previous chapter and afterwards, Jesus is describing for his followers that as they follow him, they can expect to suffer. They will suffer at the hands of other people. They will be treated unjustly. They will be slandered. And because of that, he says you will be tempted to lose heart. And everything will be leading up to his return. So this parable fits into that context. You're going to go through hard times as a believer because of other people, not just the normal trials of life, but you will be opposed. You will be persecuted. So when the Son of Man comes, in other words, when Christ returns, will he find faith or will you have have given up and lost heart? Okay, what are some lessons here? Well, while we are awaiting the return of Christ, we are to be persistent in prayer. The widow was persistent. She came before the judge continually. And she badgered him. She did not give up. And too often, as I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, we may be moved to pray for something once or maybe twice. Or if it's something really, really pressing... Uh, we, we pray a few times, and then for one reason or another, not, not always, but sometimes we may just say, well, for, for whatever reason, that's it. Or we don't decide that. We just look back and say, oh, I had not prayed about this in two years. So I think we should be able to say, I think any Christian should be able to say, I prayed for something for a year, five years, 10 years, depending on how you've been a Christian, I prayed for my father's conversion for 20 years. 20 years. And very, very, very rarely missed a day. Now, I think there was more to that than human will, for sure. But we should persist in prayer because the natural bent of our hearts is not to persist in prayer. And God does not want us to lose heart. Here are some biblical examples When we look at the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, we have many characters who prayed for months or years before they received answers, and in many cases, the answers didn't come until after they had died. The prophet Habakkuk, he begins his prophecy in the little book of Habakkuk with the question there in chapter 1, verse 2, How long, O Lord, must I call for help? I've been calling and calling and calling, nothing's happening. Then Daniel. We think about him in the lion's den. That's at the beginning of the story. But then after that, he serves in this pagan king's court, and he prays, and he waits 40 years, 40 years before that king is converted. Sarah, the wife of Abraham, waited for years for God to fulfill the promise to give a single covenant child to them. During a the lifetime of Abraham, God did not fill his promise to make Abraham the father of a great nation, of many nations. Although God is still doing that with the expansion of his church, Abraham never lived to see it. We find a woman named Hannah in the Old Testament. She went up to the temple regularly to pray and to ask that God would give her a child. And God answered that, but it was after years of prayers. In Psalm 69, verse 1, the psalmist says, Save me, O God, I am worn out from calling for help. So often those that we see commended in the Bible for their faith we often overlook the fact that they had great faith over a long period of time and often prayers that they prayed weren't answered immediately and sometimes not until after they died. Many of you here probably know the name of George Mueller. George Mueller is often associated as being a man of prayer and he ran an orphanage uh, in England during the 1800s. An unusual life George Mueller lived pretty much during the entire 19th century. He was born in 1805, and he died in 1898. My father was born in 1920 and died in the 1990s, and he used to tell me, Chip, you're going to get to see the turning of a century, but I to I see the turning of a millennium. But he said, I will not get to see that because of when I was born. So anyway, George Mueller, 1805 to, to 1898. Uh, and if you, if you Google George, and once again, not now, but later, if you, if you, if you look up George Mueller, M-U-E-L-L-E-R, M-U-E-L-E-R. I'm George Miller, he's George Mueller, uh, you will find lots of quotations about prayer because he was known as such a man of prayer. But he not only started one orphanage, he started a, like a network of orphanages but even more so than the things he wrote about prayer and how those orphanages were supported by prayer and very specific prayer for food and things like that, he had five friends that when he was about 41 years old, he began to pray that these five friends that he had known since childhood would become Christians. None of the five were believers. After many years of prayer, two of them were converted. Later in his life, continuing to pray persistently, one more was converted. And then after he died, the other two were converted. And you just wonder, from a human standpoint, and we can't know the side of heaven, but from the human standpoint, what part did prayers and persistent prayers of George Mueller play in that? So why does God want you and me to persist in prayer? What is accomplished by persistence? Why can't we just pray once, God answers, be done with it. He's all-powerful. He knows everything. Why this persistence aspect? Well, God may do something better. God may do something better than we ask. Some of God's greatest answers may come from prayers that seem unanswered. And I can't remember who said it, but I read it in one book where the person said, if God would say, if, if you knew all that God knows, you would have asked for what God gave you. If you knew all that God knows, you would have asked for what he gave you. He may do something better because it's not limited by our time frame. God uses persistence to provide blessings that require the passing of time. You may pray, if those that are parents, may pray for the spiritual growth of your children. Those that have wayward children may pray for them. Those that are in a marriage, perhaps, where one of you has become a Christian since you became, since you were married and you're praying for your spouse or, or someone, another person you love like your, your parents or, or someone else or, or a, a chronic health issue, especially with a child. Um, or guidance, guidance regarding a, a life-affecting decision. Or, like many of us, for awakening in our own nation, in our own church, in our own city, true awakening. And by persisting in prayer, God does something in us. Our circumstances may change, or they may not. Uh, But we learn to trust God and how he works. God may do something better because it's not limited by what you can see. Now... This book, I know you can't see it from there, is entitled For the Glory. I've read a lot or listened to a lot of books the past few years. This one came out in 2016. For the Glory, Eric Little's Journey from Olympic Champion to Modern Martyr. This, without a doubt, is probably the best book I've read in five years. Part of it, not only the content, which is extremely moving, but Duncan Hamilton is a British sports writer and award winning author who's an excellent writer. Um, this tells about Eric Little. Born to missionary parents from Scotland in China, he, he grew up in China and then he became Olympic champion a gold medal winner in the 1924 Olympics in Paris. For those older Americans, that's when Johnny Weissmiller, okay, don't raise your hand if you know who Johnny Weissmiller is, but some of you do. Uh, That's when he won the gold medals for for swimming. So Eric Little, after the Olympics, and you can watch those races on YouTube. I went back when I was reading this book, and I watched and saw the things he was describing. Uh, He went back to China, and that's where he wanted to invest his life in missions and he was serving on a team, and he fell in love with a young woman from Canada who was also on the mission field. They were married. They had two daughters and were serving there, and he had prayed, prayed his, prayed his life, that, Lord, use me in Asia. Use me in Asia to see many people come to faith in Christ. Well, in the 1930s, and then with Japan's expansion and so forth, And all the tension, Japan invades China. The mission agency under which Eric Little and his wife were serving said, send your wife and daughters to Canada. We need to get everyone out. But you stay behind for just a little while to wrap up some things. There wasn't just a little while, and Eric Little was imprisoned along with many, many others there in a Japanese internment camp. He ultimately died from a brain tumor while he was in that internment camp. But so much of this book focuses on what he did and how he ministered in that setting. He set up schools. He, he organized athletic teams, all to try to keep the morale of the people one man who was going to take his own life Eric was an encourager and talked to him. The man obviously not only did not take his own life, he later went on to train hundreds of missionaries. One of the children in the camp was the great-grandson of Hudson Taylor, the the missionary pioneer into China in the 1800s. And his, his grand, great-grandson was there and Eric ministered to him. He later becomes the chairman, the director of Overseas Missionary Fellowship directing 900 missionaries. Stephen Metcalf was in the camp. He goes and is a missionary leader in Japan. Eric Little dies, never sees his wife and daughters again. And we could say all those years of prayer, God didn't answer. God did not use him in Asia. And yet look at how he did use him there but he used him in a way that he never would have foreseen or ever planned for or ever desired. And that was to minister to these children in this prison camp. So God wants us to persist because he is not limited by what we see, he's not limited by what we think, and he may do something better. Y'all aren't in a hurry to go out in the rain, are you? I'm going to include something I had to cut at the first service. Um, Is that all right? Okay. Charles Spurgeon was a Baptist preacher in the 1800s in London. You think, Chip, all your illustrations are 150 years old. I like to use dead people because I know how they finished. (laughs) You get it, right? It's, it's, a, it's dangerous to use living people because you don't know what's yet to happen um, so S- Spurgeon preached and but one of the books I have is called The Pastor's Prayers and it's the corporate prayers the congregational prayers that Spurgeon would lead before the largest congregation in the world at that time, the first megachurch he preached to 6,000 people at each service at the Metropolitan Tabernacle And he was such a man of prayer. I had read hundreds of his sermons, but I got a hold of this book and I started reading the pastoral prayers and and it was almost beyond belief how specific he would get in praying for the. It would be so politically incorrect today. I, I can't believe this book would even be printed. But it's great. And Spurgeon would get so involved in the pastoral prayer that he said when he'd open his eyes, he would... Often it would stun him. He didn't realize there was anybody else in the room. 6,000 people. But almost every prayer, not everyone, but almost everyone, he prayed for the expansion of the gospel, and he prayed that God would change the hearts of the Mohammedans. That's what they called Muslims then. None of whom were in England at that time. He he prayed that the, the crescent star would wane. He prayed about Roman Catholics. He prayed about lots of things. All right. But I thought, now, all right, there was Spurgeon praying persistently, and we assume that some of the people were praying along with him, so thousands of people praying these prayers that were very specific that God would would give no success to the movement of Islam and cause it to wane. None were in England at that time, and today in London there are almost 2,000 mosques. What did God, did God turn a deaf ear to those prayers? If you know, and you probably do, that in London, the, the Islamic community is very well organized, very well funded from the all wealthy countries, and they send missionaries to England like crazy to see England become majority Muslim. And I read these prayers printed between 1840 and he died in, the, I think it was uh, 1892, something like that. And I think, okay, here we are just a little over 100 years later, and if he had only seen this that he was praying about, when, when he was praying it, there were no Muslims in, in London. And yet, if you read about these things, the early 20th century, the early 1900s, marked the first serious efforts of British and American missionaries to reach Muslims. In those early decades, mission organizations could count more missionaries who died trying to do that than those who had been converted. But all that has changed in the last 40 years. And there have been more conversions of Muslims to Christianity in the last 40 years than in all the previous centuries put together. So I back up, and I, this first time I've used this in a sermon, and I ask, "Did God? How did God receive the prayers of Charles Spurgeon?" I would say, "Were they effective? Yes, but not in any way that they would have guessed. Not in any way that the people who prayed the prayers would have thought. God is doing great things. You know where the fastest growing church is in the Middle East? Christian Church, Iran." It's in Iran, and there's strong persecution, uh, and most of it has to be underground, but it, it is growing at all the people that study these missiologists and so forth. That's where God is really, really moving. Praise God. All right, a few more minutes. What is God doing then when we persist in prayer? One, he's creating in us Christ likeness. If Romans eight twenty eight says all things work together for the good of those who love God and called according to his purpose. The highest good is Christ's likeness. So he's working in us to make us more like Christ as we persist in prayer. Second, he's doing away with distraction. Uh, if we pray for something once and God always answered, that's immediate gratification, which we know in many areas of our life is not maturity, but it's immaturity. We have to have it, we have to have it now. You know, I, I can't wait, I can't wait a day, I can't wait an hour. And yet God develops maturity in us as we pray. Third, as we pray persistently, we depend on him more and more. I read of a, a young couple, and I'm sure this testimony could be very common, who said that while their children were young and then as, in their teenage years, they prayed like crazy for their children, especially their teenagers. And they said the side benefit was that. They said we'd never been closer in our marriage Our marriage was strengthened because of our persistence in prayer. Fourth, we grow in Christ. Prayer is a means of grace. It's a tool that God uses to cause us to grow. Fifth, as we pray persistently, he renews our hearts. Uh, We pray persistently. As we do so, it's not so much that he changes our wills, but he brings our will into harmony with his. And so there are things we may pray for very persistently, and the more we pray, say, you know, I don't think this is really, from the wisdom I have, I don't think this is really what I ought to be praying about. I need to tweak this. I need to change this some and pray in a different direction. And last of all, it helps us to refine our prayers. As I told you, the the context was suffering, what will happen, it, it has more and more application to us, I think, all the time falsely accused, slandered. He says they'll be persecuted. But he says, as you are victims of such, that if we cry to him day and night, he promises to vindicate us. And so the point of this parable is that in the midst of of this, in the midst of of persecution and slander and injustice for no other reason than that you're a believer, uh, Jesus encourages us not to despair but to persist in our prayers and not lose heart. And so he ends in verse 8 when he asks an unusual question, and it's rhetorical, but it can still be asked now. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? I think it's, my opinion is, it's rhetorical because we can ask it of ourselves. If he were returned in a month, would he find faith right here, right here? Right there. And the way that he's talking about in this parable that reveals that faith is persisting in prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father, prayer is very, very difficult because it's invisible. We often, we're, we're talking to someone that isn't there, so it would appear, it seems to us, we're not used to something like that. And yet we can't deny the example of Christ. God in the flesh and yet made prayer a priority, slipping away often into the wilderness to pray, praying when he was physically exhausted, praying on the cross, uh, and now interceding for us at, at this time at your right hand. So we pray that you'd help us in this area that our flesh does not find easy. And we're easily distracted. We're easily discouraged. Uh, we want results immediately. And yet you have situations in all of our lives with people we love and know closely and others that we're just acquainted with that need intercession. And we pray that we would rise up to be those people uh, to pray. Some here are very persistent. We'd be astounded at the time and diligence that some of the people here in this room have given to prayer through the years since they came to know Christ as their Redeemer. Others of us have not been persistent and we're easily discouraged. So we pray that wherever we are, that as we leave today, you might help us. uh, Help us as as those that you love, that you've chosen through Christ, to be more persistent in prayer. Uh, That you would help us and give us faith. That it would flow from the heart, not something external or being forced on us, but something we desire to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.